Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. We don't really talk about the idea of blessing someone all that often in our culture, do we? Probably the only time that you and I have bestowed a blessing on someone is after they've sneezed, right? We don't really say, come here, my child, for I shall bless you. That's, that's not something that we do. But I'm guessing you can probably pretty quickly recall an instance where this has taken place in Scripture. Blessings were a big deal. I think the most famous example of this would be Jacob stealing the blessing from Esau by deceiving their father Isaac. The blessing that he received was a very big deal. It was important for the child to receive the blessing of the father. And when it was stolen, this was such a big deal that Jacob was scared, right? It was grounds for getting revenge against him. And you and I, I don't think that we can even begin to wrap our minds around this idea. If someone made it so that our father blessed them instead of us, you and I would probably just think that, well, he said one blessing. He's got to have another blessing in there somewhere. Just say the words over me as well, or maybe revoke the blessing. It's just words, right? Revoke the blessing on my brother who stole my blessing and give me the real one. That's how we look at it. It's just words. But that's the thing. For them, It was about so much more than words. It was about the promises of God resting upon them. It was about a family birthright. As I said, you and I, we don't get this. We kind of throw the word blessed around somewhat flippantly. And we connect it to the stuff we have or or the people around us that we love. Now hopefully we get part of this right and we understand it relatively well in that blessings are from God. And we acknowledge his benevolent hand upon us. But you see, in the Bible, the term blessed implies a whole lot more than the idea that we're going to be well off or that we're going to be happy. The idea underlying the word blessed in Scripture implies that we have received the favor of God, that God's hand is upon us, that he is going to bless us, he is going to keep us. So as we come to our passage from Luke today, we, we hear the word blessed many times as we interact with Luke's version of what you and I know as the Beatitudes. And we see this idea that this is about God bestowing his blessing upon them and having his favor upon them and having his hand upon them and God keeping them. But we see also that it isn't just covenant blessings that Jesus has come to bestow on God's people. He also delivers covenant woes. What we're going to see is that Jesus gives us a vision of God's kingdom, and that vision reverses the situations that we see in this life. God is able to bring blessings despite what we encounter in the world, and at the same time, he is able to undo what we in the world see as a blessing. God is in control. God is the one who does this. 
we're going to see how God reverses the way things are and that the kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of man. And so you and I set off into Luke's account of these famous statements from Jesus today, and we're going to break it down into three points. And the divisions are pretty easy to see in the text uh, as we read them there. The first thing we're going to see is that Jesus, once again, has people flocking to him. Last week, we finished off our passage reading about the selection of the 12 disciples. So Luke helped, Luke helped us to see a narrowing down of the ministry of Jesus to the training of these 12 men. We saw that last week. But as we see this morning, the ministry of Jesus is still broad. Yes, he's training these 12 men, but his ministry is still broad. People are still flocking to him in droves. They are drawn to him. Second, we see that Jesus is bestowing covenant blessings Like the prophets of old, Jesus speaks of the blessings that will come for the people of God. And the blessings spoken of here are amazing, and we see that they involve a reversal of fortune. God is able to take the difficulties of his people and instead show his favor to show his blessing upon them. And finally, we see that Jesus also bestows covenant woes. Again, you know from reading from the prophets Prophets always don't bring covenant blessing. They also bring covenant curses. So Jesus comes and informs the people of what happens when they do not follow God. And the appearance of blessing by the world's standards is present in people, but we see that in the long run, these earthly blessings end up being condemnation for them. And while Jesus delivers a kind word of blessing, in the blessings that we see, His message is also harsh as he is bestowing these covenant curses. But before we get to these juicy statements at the end of the passage, these covenant curses, these woes, we're given a picture of the ministry that Jesus has with his disciples. Now, as as I noted when we were lining out the points... We left off last week with Jesus picking the 12. And I I said then that because we intimately know the story of Jesus, we can see Luke foreshadowing the path that Jesus is on because when he tells us about the 12 disciples, he lets us know that Judas Iscariot is one of them and that he is going to betray him. And so there's this element of what's happening here. Jesus is going to be betrayed, betrayed, but quickly... We're brought back into this bigger ministry of Jesus as we see that even though he picked out 12 guys to be his inner circle, his tight-knit group, even though we see that, the masses are still intrigued with Jesus. They can't get enough of him. And so we see that he stands on a level place, and there's these multitudes around him. And, And notice that Luke lets us know that they're coming from everywhere. He's out teaching in Nazareth, but there are people from Judea and Jerusalem that even come all the way from the seacoast. Now, I know there are a lot of you who like maps and being able to picture what we're seeing here in these passages, so I have gotten this map here that shows us the basic locations. Now, I've taken two of the areas that the passage mentions. On the top, you'll see the arrow pointing to Tyre. I know it's small up there. The bottom one, Jerusalem, and then I've circled Nazareth. You can see here 
just what Luke is trying to tell us. Sidon is actually quite a bit north uh, of Tyre there as well. And so we see, as we look at this map, we see why Luke is telling us these place names. We know what his point is. You see, these people are coming from a long ways away to see Jesus, especially in an era where there's very little transportation other than your feet. And that's precisely what Luke wants us to understand here. This isn't just a few locals who found a teacher who's telling them what they want to hear. What we have in Jesus is someone who is drawing the attention of people from everywhere, and they're traveling a lot of miles to not only hear what Jesus has to say, but we also read that they're coming to be healed by him. And so Luke is once again showing us the authority that Jesus has. And he's reminding us of who Jesus is, his identity. He's more than just a guy who's figured out how to get the people behind him because he's skilled in public speaking and rhetoric. Jesus here is confirming his identity as the Messiah by healing people of their diseases and by casting out these unclean spirits. And we've seen this several times before. Luke makes sure that we know that Jesus has authority over diseases, over evil spirits. And this time, we read that Jesus is so powerful that people were healed simply by touching him. And you know, we shouldn't be surprised by this taking place because of what we have learned about Jesus so far. He has amazing power that can't be explained by anything other than the fact that he is divine. Remember, that's the message Luke wants us to understand. Jesus is more than a man. And so when we read this here, we're understanding just how amazing Jesus is. The miracles that Luke has let us know about, they aren't anything that a phony faith healer can imitate with some tricks or with some illusions. What Jesus is doing These aren't parlor tricks. We have seen Jesus heal amazing things, and we have also seen him have divine knowledge of what people are thinking. And we have even seen him tell someone that their sins are forgiven. And this information that he is able to heal people just by people touching him shouldn't be surprising for us because Luke has let us know who Jesus is and the power that he has. And the big point being that he is a messenger from God. Like the prophets of the past, he is showing his authority to speak by the fact that God is doing miraculous things through him. Think back to the Old Testament. In the past, the people of God listened to the word of the Lord from Moses because the plagues were done when he was the messenger of God. The Red Sea was parted. The people received manna from heaven and water from the rock While Moses was God's servant, when God would speak, the message was often accompanied by miraculous signs to confirm the message of the prophet. And this is important here because now we're about to hear a prophetic pronouncement from the mouth of Jesus as he bestows these covenant blessings that we see in verses 20 through 23. And we find here 
that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. The masses are around him, but Luke gives us the idea that he is speaking directly to his disciples. This is something that he wants them to understand. It's a message for them. Now, I want to address something that, that you're probably wondering about, because normally we know these ideas from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew. But here we saw that Jesus is speaking on level ground, right? And some of the words here are different than the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Plus the woes that we look at next, our final point, those aren't even in the Sermon on the Mount. Why is that? Why is this different? Well, the best way to understand this is that Jesus had a three-year teaching ministry, and he probably spoke to people nearly every day in multiple locations. Much of what he would have taught was going to be repeated. And this has always been common with teachers and preachers. Whether in the past or in the present day, you're going to reuse material with people who haven't heard it. For example, when I do an evening service with our CRC friends in Chandler, Leota, or here in town, trust me, I don't go through the effort of writing them a whole new sermon. You get, they get one that you've, that you've tested out for me, right? I have probably 300 sermons they haven't heard, so I dig into the archives. What Jesus is teaching, what Jesus is preaching, is still true no matter where he says it. He would have said it in different ways in different places. So Jesus likely pronounced these blessings in multiple locations. He wasn't being recorded. He wasn't being broadcast on the radio or on the internet worldwide. His message was important, and he was repeating the story of the kingdom of God and the calls to repentance for people to hear all over the region. He was doing the same message all over the place. And as we dig into these blessings, we can understand why they would need to be heard by his disciples and why they would need to be heard to people all around because of the image that they give us of the kingdom of God. We start off with addressing their place and their status in the world. These disciples have given up everything to follow a rabbi as he teaches around this region of Galilee. These guys aren't exactly living it up in mansions while being attended to by servants here. It is likely a very humble existence. But Jesus tells them that they are blessed to be poor. Now we do well to remember back a little ways in Luke here. He opened up the scriptures, remember when he was in the synagogue, and he read that passage from Isaiah? What was one of the lines that Jesus read from Isaiah? The Spirit of the Lord was upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Luke is bringing up that theme again, and it's going to come up again in Luke. Jesus has not come for those in positions of power or in positions of wealth or in positions of influence. He has come to the forgotten and the downtrodden of society. And, in, and so in a world that says you are blessed if you are wealthy, Jesus is saying that you are blessed to be exactly the opposite. And what does he say? He says yours is the kingdom of God. And if theirs is the kingdom of God, even though they don't possess much in the way of earthly possessions, what do they possess? Salvation and the infinite riches 
of God. And so notice the reversal here. You are poor here, but you are blessed to have the kingdom of God. You suffer now, but one day you will have wealth in God's kingdom. And the theme of all of this passage is reversal, isn't it? Jesus takes something that is true of them in the present and states that this condition is a blessing because God is going to bestow something else upon them. You're hungry now? You're lacking satisfaction? The kingdom of man has failed you. But Jesus says the kingdom of God will satisfy. You're in mourning now? The curse has wreaked havoc upon your life as you lose loved ones to sickness and disease. Well, Jesus says the curse doesn't get the final word. You're weeping now, but in the kingdom of God, you will know laughter. And notice how huge these reversals are. Being poor to having an inheritance in the kingdom of God. That's a big jump. Same with hunger to satisfaction and weeping to laughing. Something has changed here. The state of affairs is being altered by the one who is right there in front of them speaking these blessings to them because he is the one who causes these changes, these dramatic changes to occur. And we see that Jesus includes following him in the list of things that cause trouble in this life. You're blessed, he says, when people hate and exclude you and call you evil on account of the Son of Man. When the disciples took to following the one that they believed to be the Messiah, is this what they expected? Did they think that following the promised one of Scripture, the one that they had been hoping for, did they think that it would lead them to being hated? I probably don't, I probably think that was not their expectation. And we see the same thing in our time. What do we naturally expect when we follow God? We expect that we should be blessed, right? We expect to gain something, something other than growing in holiness. But the opposite is actually promised to the disciples here. And we need to read these difficult words and take them to heart ourselves. We can't expect that a world that hated our Savior is going to be fond of us. We should not expect that as a people who serve a crucified Lord, we will be greeted with the accolades of the world. The message of the gospel is sweet. It is sweet. Salvation is absolutely and unbelievably good news. But in order to understand the good news, what has to happen? We must be convicted of our sin, and we must hear a call to repent and turn from our sin. And how does that go over? Yeah. Look at what we've seen with Jesus thus far in Luke. It is only by the sovereign design and providence of God that Jesus makes it from Luke 4 when he begins his ministry to Luke 23 when he's crucified and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus has been under threat of his life already. We're in Luke 6, and we've read it more than on one, more than one occasion. And that's because the call to repentance is never popular. 
Let's be honest with ourselves. None of us like it. It's hard to be convicted of sin, and it's even harder to put sin to death. But this is the call upon us to pursue righteousness and to trust that following Jesus is greater than being stuck in the mire of our sin and our unbelief. And so we follow Jesus despite what the world would say of us. And in fact, Jesus says that we should rejoice in that day that we are persecuted because our reward is great in heaven. And this is really the greatest reversal of all. To go from being reviled by humans to finding favor in the eyes of the Almighty. And notice what Jesus has to say here. It should tell us something. That the prophets who spoke the word of the Lord were hated. They came with the truth, and those who were unfaithful to the covenant persecuted the prophets. In other words, the truth of God's word is not well received by those whose hearts are hard but the prophets received a far greater inheritance than the approval of men, didn't they? And this is the ultimate blessing of being a child of God. Things are reversed for us. We are poor in our unbelief, but we are made rich through faith in the Lord Jesus. We are starving for truth, but God comes to us by his word, and he feeds us, and we are satisfied. We weep as we grieve our sin, And we grieve the reign of the curse in our lives. But when we are saved by grace through faith, our tears are turned to laughter, for we have received a great gift from our God. All of these things are good news, but we do not just hear the good news from Jesus in our passage today. It's not only blessings that are given out, but we also read of the woes in verses 24 through 26. And notice how these covenant curses are also reversals of the reversals. Woe to those who are rich, for they've received their consolation. What does Jesus mean by this? If you've received wealth in this life and you're satisfied by the riches of this life, then you already have everything you're going to get. Previously, we saw that the poor would receive the inheritance of the kingdom of God, but those who do not seek God... Those who do not come to repentance and faith will only have the wealth in the things of this world, not the infinite riches of the kingdom of God. And if they're full now, if they're satisfied now, they're going to be hungry. And I think it is this woe that most clearly shows us that we are speaking here of things that are ultimately spiritual and not material here. It's obvious that Jesus is not saying, if your belly is full now, your belly is going to be empty later. That's that's not the point. He is speaking of things that are deeper and of greater consequence than indulgence and gluttony and the opposite, starvation. What he's saying is if you think that you're fulfilled and that you've been spiritually fulfilled on your own, you can never know the fullness of that the gospel brings. You will always be trying to reach God on your own, and you can't reach God that way. We also see that if you're finding joy in the things of this life and the pleasures of this world, you will eventually mourn and weep. And the idea being expressed is that there is something more than the pleasures of this life because they will not ultimately satisfy. They cannot bring fulfillment 
And we know that eventually you need to stand on something more. Because the curse comes for each and every one of us. Will we laugh now and avoid the death that faces us all? No. Or are we going to mourn now and grieve over our sin and our mortality and then embrace the salvation that Jesus Christ brings? And then the final woe comes and speaks again of people speaking well of us. And it goes back to what we saw in the blessings. Now, it's important that what is being said here by Jesus is not that it is bad if people speak good things about how you interact with them or how you conduct business. Obviously, we want, we want to live a life where people see us as people who do things well. We want them to speak well of us as we interact in the society and culture around us. But notice the context that Jesus uses here. Their fathers spoke well of the false prophets. They were revealed by the people while the true prophets spoke the word of the Lord with boldness and conviction. You see, we can water down the gospel, and we can water down the word of God, and we can speak merely of social improvement in the culture, and no one is going to get altogether too upset about us. We can water it all down, and nobody is going to care. Or, we can rightly understand God's law, and call ourselves and others to repent and to believe the gospel. In other words, a gospel without conviction of sin and calls to turn from sin and strive for holiness before God, that is a false gospel. And it will offend no one except the Lord Jesus, who suffered and died that we might repent and believe the good news and proclaim the true hope of salvation to all people. So we come to the end of this passage, and it's imperative that we stop and assess how these blessings and curses apply to us. So from these four blessings and these four woes, I want to line out for us today four summaries of how you and I can take this passage into the world with us this week. First, do not think yourself spiritually rich on your own. Realize that you are only spiritually rich because you have been brought into the kingdom of God by the grace of God. Seek not the riches of this world, but instead seek the riches of Christ's kingdom. Secondly, do not think yourself to be spiritually full. Stay hungry for the Word of God. Pursue holiness and not the things of this world that satisfy the flesh. Third, grieve the curse and its effect on our lives. Look at the brokenness of the world and grieve over your sin and the way that that sin has wreaked havoc on this world, but find joy in the fact that we know that God has brought us into his kingdom and strive each day to labor for the kingdom of God, knowing that our labors for the Lord are not in vain. And finally, desire not the approval of the world, but seek to be faithful to the word of God. Each and every day, 
you and I have the temptation placed in front of us to compromise the Word of God. Let's be honest here. Things would be a lot easier, and they are a lot easier, when we just capitulate. Not just in the culture, but in our own personal lives. Giving in to the temptations that we face is a lot easier than standing up to our temptations and to the pull of the world. But God has called us to be faithful to His Word. And it's important to remember that He has not abandoned us. When we feel the temptation, we must understand that we are called to remain faithful. And we also have the confidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in us. Remember, the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin and unbelief. So may we humbly pray for God's Spirit to continue to be at work in us that we might be found faithful to God's Word. For our reward is not found here in this earth that will fade. Our reward is in heaven, and it is great. May God bless us with faithfulness to his holy word, that the name of Christ might receive all honor, glory, and praise for who he is and what he has done to save a people for himself. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.